0: purpose, I've tried to summarize it there, uh, to um, interpret, understand, and apply the parables and uh, miracle stories that are in the four Gospels. Uh, But that uh, involves a large number of aspects. Uh, The structure of the accounts, including genre questions, relation to Old Testament, relation to the purposes of the particular Gospels relation to the climactic events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, relation to systematic theology, relation to our time. I'm not so good on that last one, but um, it is an integral part of (laughs) total understanding, I believe. Then uh, there will also be some consideration of uh, form-critical and reaction-critical approaches as practiced in the historical critical tradition. Not preoccupied with that. Uh, not uh, a terribly large space in the course as a whole, but um, this inevitably will crop up in the commentaries, and so uh, I'm going to include some reflections on what do we do when we interact with such things. So, here we go. A. Is there? Do the Gospels create? or produce any difficulties. Well, maybe they shouldn't. But I would suggest that the Gospels in general, and then, of course, parables and miracles in particular, have created problems in terms of people struggling to know what exactly to do with them in the church context. So, point one is that there is a problem in a popular appreciation and use of the gospels on the one hand one extreme is a what you might call dry as dust past history exposition this is less typical in practical use maybe but this is what happened back then and there period or the other extreme unbridled allegory that is something that uses quite a bit of imagination uh, in its reaction to the story. And the problems exist of these extremes, not only in more popular approaches to the gospel, but in scholarly circles, but somewhat different problems. Uh, So point two is that I think there are problems in scholarly circles as well. A, since the rise of the historical critical method, the question of whether the Gospels present an accurate picture of Jesus and of the events of his life has dominated the discussion. And because it's dominated the discussion, the actual issue of what do the Gospels mean? (laughs) What does a particular parable mean for us, or a miracle story mean for us, has been somewhat backgrounded, and even more obviously with miracle stories. Now, some of the historical critical division, like Dodd, for instance, argues that the parables are one of the most authentic parts of the gospels. In other words, Jesus really did teach in parables. It's a characteristic thing that he did. And although there may be some embellishments that the gospel writers have turned in. This is Dodd, not me, speaking, okay? Uh, that, nevertheless, it, there's a substantial core that's historically accurate. With respect to the miracle, and of course, he, others, Jeremiah is, is uh, not as positive as Dodd about that, and there are people who would be a lot more skeptical than Jeremiah. With respect to the miracle stories, the thing is, in a sense, in a worse position, right? Because uh, the issue, is whether these miracles really happened or whether they are inventions later uh, to recommend uh, the Christian faith to outsiders. And that particular thing is not a thing I'm going to devote a lot of time to because I'm assuming in this course that the Gospels are the Word of God. (laughs) And, you know, if one wants to argue that, then one goes to an apologetics course and, you know... And the introductory sections of the Gospels course, and and so on, uh, and it's tiresome, and and I think some of you will agree, it's tiresome, to to have people constantly rehash that thing. <laughs> uh, in a sense, I mean, there's there's a place where it has to be done because this is out there in the world, right? These issues, you only need to take Peter Jennings, uh, thing television. Uh, thing on the Jesus and the New Testament, which is very, very skeptical. That stuff is out there. So we have to be prepared to deal with it. That's not this course. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, that has been a dominant question, and a lot of the discussion about miracle stories in particular has been discussions about whether they happen, uh, which is not um, where I'm going to go in the course. To b in addition to the, to the issue of, of the, um, the accuracy of the Gospels, the explanation and research of the Gospels has been primarily in terms of tracing their origins. That is, of doing certain um, discussions of, for instance, the synoptic problem. What sources, written sources, did the synoptic authors use? And then earlier stage form criticism says, well, how did this material circulate or orally beforehand? Luke does indicate that he was aware that other people had written before him. So uh, there is, at least for Luke, some degree of this, although, you know, Luke indicates that other people had undertaken to, to compile a narrative. He doesn't say point blank whether he used the sources, of those other people. It's perhaps plausible to assume that he did. <laughs> if he's aware of those other things, but he doesn't say that he did. So, so um, a lot has to be um, uh, a matter of speculation as to what happened. And point three, then, is over against this scholarly movement until recently. Now recently, I should say, before I get into point three, recently we've had an influx of literary approaches to the Gospels and to other biblical literature. and. These things at first came in sort of as the young Turks who were upsetting apple carts and doing stuff that had almost no relation to the older historical critical tradition. Now there's a lot of people who are paying, you know, one foot in both camps who are paying attention to what's happening. Uh, but the literary approaches are not what I was describing at this point. It was the things up till about 1980, but still continuing that are looking at gospel origins. Point three is, over against this, these developments in the scholarly and popular world, I am saying, and we'll develop this a little more, two things. A, one is, or, or the first of these, A, that there is analogy between the once-for-all events in the Gospels, both miracles and parable teaching, analogy between then and now. But an analogy means that there's continuity and discontinuity, and that's going to be the struggle over and over again. So, you know, on the one side, remember the popular approach, right? Either the driest dust, this happened back there, that's emphasizing the discontinuity, but to the point where it's difficult to see any application, right? J- Jesus did these things, but that's of historical interest. But, uh, you know, no Christian can really be very satisfied with that being the only thing you say. So maybe on top of that you say, well, it proves that he was divine and that his claims were true. Okay, is there anything more, <laughs> right, than we that we gain from this? So over against that uh, extreme emphasis on the discontinuity and the uniqueness of the events, I'm saying there is analogy between those and... Uh, present salvific realities, and then over against the extremes of an allegorical approach, which tends to then stress nothing but the continuities, uh, I'm going to uh, steer something of a middle course. Then point B is, over against the scholarly tendency to look at the Gospels in terms of the origins, uh, my reply is the meaning of a Gospel is what it says, not the history of its origins. Now, if you've been in my hermeneutics class. That should not be an unfamiliar thought. Uh, Now, let's give an example. And this is primarily just to further illustrate the problems. Luke 14, 1-6, a miracle story. One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. What do we do with that? How do you preach it? Well, again, if I may, deal with these two polarities of popular things. Well, the one polarity is to treat it primarily or sometimes almost exclusively as a historical description of what happened once, an example of how a religious innovator, but not just any innovator, fights against establishment tradition. But, of course, there's also this component of a miraculous action of healing, right? So you can say the miraculous action vindicates Jesus' divinity, but also the truth of his teaching. And he stumped them. He, he, they had nothing to say. So even intellectually, he had the upper hand, not only in terms of the miraculous action, but in terms of the verbal reply. So the modern audience goes out knowing that Jesus is a first century man that he healed, he had miraculous power to heal, and that he was opposed, and that he stumped his opponents, right? So, in effect, I'm, am dealing with the driest dust. Is <laughs> that exciting? <laughs> well, it may excite you because you know it's Jesus, right? You bring into the picture other things. You know, this is your Lord and Savior, but where do you get those things? Are those from the passage? Right, and so I'm trying to ask, you know, the narrow question of what do we do with this specific passage, and if it means more to you than that, why does it mean more? But then you can also imagine then the other extreme, a detailed allegory. So here's an approach: one Sabbath, let's go through the thing, statement by statement. One Sabbath stands for the time that God has set to renew the world. Now, you can deal. You could do an allegory. I'm going to do a cosmic allegory and then an individual allegory, all right? So the one Sabbath stands for the time that God is set to renew the world, the time of recreation. He went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee and the Pharisee stands for, and his cohorts stand for, the kingdom of Satan, the opponents. And there was in front of him a man standing for mankind. Who had dropsy standing for the fall, right? Disease is an effect of the fall. And then Jesus asks the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So he rebukes the devil. Verse 4 He heals the man, the devil is defeated, and mankind is restored, and the world is restored in the end, because even the physical character. So that's the story. Here's the story of redemption uh, as an allegory. Are you comfortable with that? (laughs) All right. Let me give you an individual allegory on the same passage. The time, the one Sabbath, is the time of conversion or of spiritual crisis. Okay. And Jesus went to to the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. Again, there are people who are trying to prevent the person's conversion. There is in front of him a man. This is the (laughs) pre-convert. Right? The unregenerate, suffering from dropsy, suffering from sin. And Jesus asks the Pharisees and the Experts in law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So, in effect, he rebukes the system of this world that holds the man captive. They remain silent, so taking hold of the man, that is, the individual is converted. He's healed, he's healed spiritually. right. now. You don't like that. Well, let me give you a moralistic, (laughs) let me give you a moralistic use of this. This story teaches. That one may perform deeds of mercy on the Sabbath. That is a real, if you've been in Presbyterian circles very long, you know that is a real issue, right? If Sabbath is the day of rest, if the Sunday is the, uh, you know, the Christian Sabbath, what is lawful to be done? And uh, this was a deed of mercy, and then endorses, for instance, the uh, activity of Christian nurses may work in hospitals um, on Sunday. Is that the teaching of this story? Well it is one implication, right? But is that is that the main thing? Now, I if you want to know beforehand, I think there are grains of truth in all of these that I presented, but also some distortions or one-sidedness, there's some problems. For some of them, like the moralistic one, it's not so much what is said as what isn't said. OK, so that the deduction would be fair enough. But but if that's all you do with every story in the Gospels, you see, is that, are you really getting the whole picture? Well, I've got a second example, but uh, uh, yeah, I think you can, you get the point here. OK, um, so uh, A, that's 2A. 2A is saying basically that despite a kind of simplicity, a, a glorious simplicity to the Gospels, a glorious accessibility to, to you know, ordinary people who read them, and yet there, is, there are challenges here, particularly for the preacher and for the student of Scripture to say, what do I do other than read the Gospels? <laughs> you know, like an ordinary person would read them. How are the Gospels intended to be used? That's the question. Okay. So, capital B on the way to answering that question is considering the Gospels in terms of their genre. What are they? So, t- several points here. Point one, they are divine. That is, they are only properly treated when acknowledged to be the word of God written. Now, that, could be, that would, should be said of uh, other books of scripture, of course. But there are some immediate implications. Now, much of what I'm going to be saying here is obvious, but bears saying, right, because uh, we've got to remind ourselves of these things. So, two implications A, uh, no anti supernaturalism, denying, for instance, that this leper was really healed, of saying, oh, you know, there was some underlying event, but, but less than supernatural. And B, It means also that I think we are steered away from a flat reading that treats these things as a bare record of past events. God caused this to be written, not simply, in other words, it wasn't just Luke we've been looking at saying, um, you know, somebody somewhere may be interested in what happened, so I'll just write down one thing after another. But God purposing to write for our benefit. Sure, the events really happened, you see, and and that's the avoiding the anti-supernaturalism. If they're divine, they have the authority of God, we can trust the account. But also then, they have a purpose, as all scripture is not, you know, is uh, for 2 Timothy 3, 6, not only God breathed, but profitable. How do we profit from this part of scripture? Second, they are human writings. They are only properly treated when acknowledged as embedded in a historical situation that is addressed to people of the first century. And that means that we should suspect the detailed allegorical kind of thing that I did with this man with with dropsy. Now, if you could show that the original first century audience did this and were trained to do this, then we'd have to accept that that was correct, you see. But I think most of the people who do it have not really, they're not really reflecting on the historical character of the scripture, right? They're doing it because it is the Word of God, indeed, but without considering the fact. Was the original human author thinking this way? Was he expecting it to be used this way? And you see, within the first century environment, it is very important that people know who Jesus was, particularly as Christianity expanded beyond Jerusalem and beyond the immediate circle of the apostles. Now, the apostles were eyewitnesses and can say, well, you know, this is what I remember. But as Christianity expanded, people are are saying more and more, well, You know, these other people who are not constantly under, uh, you know, in in face-to-face contact with the apostles need some means to regulate their understanding of Jesus, who is their Lord Messiah. So the point is that there is a historical interest and not merely allegorical interest in this. And the Gospels are expected to be read as historical records. So that... Raises some suspicion whether a thoroughgoing, full blown allegorical reading isn't that alien to the first century situation. Okay, and I think then that that is at least uh, a factor to consider. Point three what they are not. What mistakes do people make about their assumptions as they bring to the gospel? Here's some things I would suggest. A, they are not biographies of Jesus according to modern interests and prejudices. Now, they are biographies of a sort, right? And they're interested, as I've already asserted, and we'll come back to this, they are interested in in what happened. But modern people can be quite arbitrary and sometimes a little um, inflexible in what they expect. Uh, and, and here's some particulars, then, under A. One, they are not full biographies in terms of giving you information about every detail. And you expect any biography to start with a person's, you know, if it's a full biography, you expect it to start with the parent's. Luke sort of does, Mark doesn't. So that isn't of the essence of, essence of the things. And even here in this story of uh, the man with dropsy, you'd like to know more about the Pharisees and their understanding and how they reacted. You know, there's always these... A people would like to fill in <laughs> these stories. Second, they are not necessarily in chronological order. Now, this is a big issue, which we're not going to get into strongly because it doesn't really touch um, on us very directly. But, for instance, uh, Matthew 8... 1 to 4, well, this is not the uh, man with dropsy. Matthew 8, 1 to 4, there's a healing of a man with leprosy. And it seems to be, and this is one of the problems you can't ever tell with absolute certainty, it seems to be the same event that Luke talks about in Luke 5, 12 to 16. Matthew places a healing after the Sermon on the Mount and just before the incident with the healing of the centurion's slave. Luke 5, 12 to 16 places the incident where Jesus heals a leper before the Sermon on the Plain, although if you look carefully at Luke, there's nothing in Luke that says, now after this Jesus stood and taught the people. In Matthew there is a transition that looks like uh, uh, look at 8.1. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, that seems to be an assertion of a chronological order. If you look at Luke, you can't find any such assertion. Okay, so the point then is that unless you've got in particular cases, you do sometimes have assertions that one thing is one after another, right after the other. But apart from those specific assertions, the point is, it's not necessarily all in chronological order, although as we read it, a lot of modern people assume, oh well, you know, because you expect to read a story in chronological order. They just assume that that's so. Third, it's not necessarily with a precision of detail. Only Marx says that the leper in this incident spread the news in spite of the prohibition to do so. Only Luke mentions that afterward Jesus withdrew to pray, chapter 5:16. 16. So, again, my solution would be, well, all of these things are true, but any one gospel writer doesn't mention all of them. Fourth, actually even modern biographies do not conform to hothouse theoretical ideals of what a biography should do. So sometimes people actually impose an idea that if they actually looked at what even moderns do, they would realize it's unrealistic. So what's the conclusion from that? Well, A is it's not biography according to modern interests. B, it's not chronicle, that is, a bare listing without theological um, interests. And C, it's not edifying fiction, as some of the liberals are on a point of saying. D, so positively, I believe it's necessary for us to submit to God's ways in transmitting to us the story of Christ and and to say, maybe, you know, you. It does things in a way different from what we would have expected or what we would advise the gospel writers to do. But that's okay. Fourth, what are they positively? Is that number four? Three was what they're not for. What are they positively? My answer would be that they are gospel or good news. Mark 1.1 I'm already presupposing that one can classify the Gospels as belonging to a common genre, but I think that's fairly intuitively evident. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now Mark, this is a little tricky because Mark does not say this, is the go- this book is the Gospel. It's rather the contents, the story, which is the Gospel, but you can, you can still see that things are closely uh, related, And John 20, verse 31, famous passage. Uh, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All right, they are news that calls for response, believing in Christ, which is substantively the same thing as what the apostolic message in Acts calls for. So how are they, to quote, Romans, the saving power of God for all who believe, they are that as records of redemption. In effect, Gaffin's and other people around here category history of redemption, announcing what God has done in history. Now, all of redemption, all of the, God, all of the, the, um, the Bible that, that narrates about redemption is in a broad sense record of redemption, right? But that history of redemption has its focus here, particularly in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, the healing of the man with dropsy or the healing of the leper in Luke 5, 12 to 16 is not the, you know, the climactic focus of it all. But neither is it merely a teaching illustration of the fact that Jesus is divine or an illustration of the meaning of redemption for teaching purposes. But it is an accomplishment of redemption. So you see what I'm trying to do in saying the Gospels are not merely a pedagogical thing, right? of saying, well, we need them to teach you what redemption is in your life. Not merely that, but looking at what God actually did. Although the healing of the leper, obviously, is redemption in a preliminary way when you compare that with the accomplishment of redemption in the crucifixion and the, and the resurrection of Christ. But the restoration of the cosmos takes place in the resurrection of Christ, because he is the first fruits of the renewal of all things. And the, the action in the gospels leads up to that. So, next point under this, what they are if you're taking notes, four is what they are. A under that is they are good news or gospel. B, they are uh, that as records of redemption, and C, they are record, records of the mediator, Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the focus of the gospels, obviously, not merely biography of Christ, as if um, you would tell it of another a person who is merely human being but Christ in his significance as Redeemer, right? So that helps to explain some of the things. And for instance, there are these apocryphal gospels that fill in the childhood of Christ, stories about Jesus as a child. And you can understand in a way how that happened because people had a natural interest in that. So why don't the real gospels do that? because it's not redemptive activity at that point, you see. It's not. It's, there's the focus on the public ministry for that purpose. I, I don't think I can answer that simply. Uh, you know, Gaffin has this model, which I think is right, that typically in the Old Testament you see it. There's a promise of God in word, uh, for instance, to Abraham, that the people will be uh, delivered out of Egypt, and there's the action of God, and of course, the promises reiterated to Israelites before they leave Egypt. There's the action of God, judgments on the Egypt, and they actually cross the Red Sea. And then there's interpretive reflection on it in the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15, and, and later appeals to the Exodus. Right? So that the word indeed are interlocked in a complicated way. And it's something like that with the Gospels. The Gospels are reflection after the fact in terms of when the words are written, right? They're written in the context of after the resurrection. They're reflections backward, but reflections which, of course, pick up on Old Testament motifs so that they are reminding you that that words preceded as well as followed the accomplishment. And the the application of redemption, of course, is both an activity of the Holy Spirit, which is deed-oriented, and it's something that takes place by means of the word, right? So, of course, preceding the event, right, you have the, the word of prophecy. That's what I'm saying. But you're right that the word is certainly interpretive of the event that is already there in the case of the Gospels themselves. Okay. Well, Christ in His significance as Redeemers. And the Gospels, of course, then focus largely on Christ. And they give knowledge of Him and in that knowledge is salvation. So, the way you see, if you say, how do the Gospels become good news? It's because of the centrality of Christ Himself in the Gospels. Now, I think this is worth thinking about for all of us. For me, I'm talking to myself as well as the rest of you, because seminary training, there's always the tendency, I think, to, to, um, to think of it in terms of the categories of systematic theology. And the Gospels have lots of material that, that feeds into systematic theology. Uh, and yet, it, it, is, it would be a mistake to reduce them to a merely intellectual plane, right? If saying, rather, it is the case, the Gospels give you a knowledge of Christ. It isn't simply that, oh, the Gospels are sort of uh, unformed data. With, from which you deduce a systematic theology, and then the systematic theology presents to you Christ from which you come to know Him, you see. I mean, that can happen, right? But I'm saying it happens even without the mediation of a fully formed systematic theology. If you think about how people are converted, <laughs> typically they don't have a full systematic theology in place first, and they're often converted reading the Gospels, right? Sometimes it's through preaching, but, but sometimes it's through. Direct reading of the Gospels. Okay, so that means, well, it said, John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See? Right? That is eternal life, and to know Christ is to know him as he's presented in the Gospels. The Gospels have a central role, in fact, in the Christian life in that respect. What does, so, you come back to something like the healing of the leper, Luke 5, or the healing of the man with dropsy, And we ought to be asking ourselves, what does this story say about Christ? What does it say about his power? Surely, and it does, I think every one of the miracle stories, indirectly is an indication of his deity. What does it say about his attitude toward human need? What does it say about his attitude toward Moses, right? Because here, you know, the Sabbath question comes up in this case of the dropsy with the leper. It's the the issue of uncleanness, which is a mosaic uh, category. And actually, in that story, uh, Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest as Moses commanded for proof to the people. So all of these things, that source of questions should be uh, on our minds as we're reading and reflecting about the Gospels. Now, capital C then. General principles concerning the applicability of the Gospels. Okay, if we've got at this point something of a vague sense, they're going to be applicable. How do we handle that applicability? And I'll give, let's take a five minute break and uh, before I start into that area. Capital C, general principles concerning the applicability of the Gospels. One is the clarity of Scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, verse 7, or section 7, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Interesting qualification, right, that some people do not realize. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Well, a little um, bit dated in its way of phrasing it, but you understand what it means. Now, what does that mean? That means that there is room for complexities in the Gospels, right? That not everything may be easy. Alongside with what John says, these things are written that you believe that Jesus is Christ the Son of God. And believe me, you may have life in His name. The basic message is clear. So there is a basic applicability on the level of the basic message. And I think you can go a little further than the Westminster Confession does. Psalm 119, verse 130. Psalm 19, verse 7, the latter says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. I think it goes a little further in basically saying it's not only true of Scripture taken as a whole, the entirety of the Bible, but it's true of parts of Scripture too, that they are making capable of making wise the simple. So that the clarity issue applies to, to um, bite-sized portions of Scripture as well, but again it would be clarity qualified, I think, in the way that the Westminster Confession does. of saying it doesn't mean that every aspect of a particular verse is clear, but that it is uh, capable of making us wise. Okay, now what about the clarity of the Gospels in particular? So point two, point one is clarity of Scripture. Point two, the clarity of the Gospels. They are historical records or reports. Perhaps more than this, but at least this, and I would even say Primarily this. And I think that ordinary believers have had a kind of instinct here, although, you know, they sometimes have not looked at all the niceties and all the scholarly debates and stuff. When people say that this is edifying fiction, then they are they get their backs up, right? They're they're ready to fight. Because it just doesn't look that way. And and I think you've got to say, you know, and I'm talking against the concept. Against the background, a concept of a genre, right? Because technically, one can believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and do anything with it for, if one is tricky enough in view in one's concept of genre. That is, you can say the Bible is in error, but he never claimed to, that these things were historical. And Boltmann, though he didn't believe in biblical inerrancy, he easily could have, <laughs> because he could, could have said, that the, the, the point of the Gospels is to give you a sort of existential experience of renewal. And it doesn't matter from the standpoint of the Gospels' own purposes, whether it's you know, historically grounded or not, you see. So they are inerrant in what they claim, but what they claim is is very ah-historical, right? He could have done that kind of move. And the point is, if you've got a radical enough hermeneutic, then you know, the God, the, any part of the Bible can be made to mean something very different than what it actually means. So this is something where it really does become a genuine issue. Well, why is this of, of interest to us? Because I think people's instincts, knowing that this is from God, of saying God knew what he was doing, he makes his word accessible, meaning if it looks like history, it is history. <laughs> right? So there's a certain proper naivety of saying the burden of proof is on somebody who's going to come up with some crazy idea of saying it isn't what it appears to be. And this, it does touch on things like Robert, our friend Robert Gundry, who is an evangelical, who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture, who wrote a commentary on Matthew, which is both famous and infamous, <laughs> because it got him kicked out of the Evangelical Theological Society. Why did it get him kicked out? because he claimed that Matthew was Midrash. Now, one of his problems, I saw the thing, by the way, or pieces of it before it was published and wrote back to him and said, you've got to define Midrash. This, is, this thing can be all over the, the map. And that was one of his problems, but he, he said it was Midrash. And what he meant by that was the effect that Matthew embellished history uh, with fictional elements and the people understood that because the Jews did some similar thing. Now, it is a thing called Midrash within Judaism. It doesn't look like that, what I've seen. As a genre, it'll quote a line of scripture and then it'll develop it, you see. So it's a specific genre that does it. But if that kind of thing, you can see the difference between the scripture and the fanciful things that you build on it, you see. With Matthew, you can't see the difference. though. Again, Gundry claimed he'd used Mark and, and, and uh, expects people to understand that. And it, it was understood in the first century and has been forgotten ever since, which is, you know, part of the thing, okay, the burden of proof is on you, you see. This has this been misunderstood by the church throughout all ages, right? Then the burden of proof is on you. And other people, if you read in the literature now, you'll see other people have gone to analyze this, this uh, amorphous and rather inchoate idea of Midrash and said, you know, this really won't, there isn't uh, clear evidence uh, from the first century in that environment that uh, would have alerted people. So, So other people have gone in and said, you know, he really hasn't made his case. But the point is, that's a rather significant thing, right, of what you can do with genre. And I'm not saying that God can't surprise us. I mean, there's errors On the other side of insisting like this thing of its biography, if it's biography, it has to be biography according to my modern prejudices. Now, nobody's going to say that, right? (laughs) But the danger is that you bring an agenda, right, that is a modern agenda and impose it on the Gospels. We don't want that. But neither do we want a thing where the ordinary reader has to be helped by a priesthood of scholarship that's telling him it doesn't, again, again, it doesn't mean what it (laughs) <laughs> everybody can see that it does mean. <laughs> so I don't think there's any easy solution to this, except that you know God, through the Spirit, teaches people corporately as well as individually and leads the truth, the people into the truth. But we've got to wrestle with the challenges of scholarships of people like Gundry, who was honestly trying to be an evangelical and to be faithful to what he saw in Matthew. I don't think he did a good job, but I wouldn't accuse him of being morally duplicitous or something like that. I don't even think he should have been voted out of the Evangelical Theological Society because their statement was a very minimal statement. I believe he did, he was an inerrantist, but it shows the problems of a minimal statement, doesn't it? Because, because as I said, you can do anything with hermeneutics and, and uh, the society was upset with what he was doing and felt that it was out of bounds, but they really, I don't think they could have shown that he was out of bounds using their actual confession put a confessional statement. So, anyway, as far as I'm concerned, he's a brother in Christ. But what he's doing is dangerous, see. I wish he weren't advocating this. I do think it has been refuted by others and so on. But, anyway, this issue of clarity, we need to say to the ordinary person what I think God assures us of in the entirety of Scripture, namely that the word is accessible. And if the gospels look like historical records to the average reader, then presumably they are. (laughs) They are records of what Jesus really did and really said leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection. And we will come back to this. I think there's some more scholarly evidence over against the people who are like Gundry and others. We will come back to it because I, I don't think, you know, you don't want to just argue because I feel that it is that it is, right? You know, so bringing to bear scholarly evidence, I don't want to poo-poo that. I don't want to poo-poo the people who did these scholarly articles trying to refute Gundry. Uh, that needs to be done too. Okay, third, implications for the use of the gospels. If they are so, A, they are meant to be read. First Timothy 4.13, talks, Paul talks to Timothy and says, until I write, devote your attention to the public reading of the scriptures. To exhortation to teaching. Well, there are other things besides the public reading of scriptures. Well, one of the things is the public reading of scriptures. And people can say, well, in those days not everybody could read, so this was pretty important. But I think there is a valuable place for this even now. And one should at least raise the question, ought the Gospels to be read publicly more than they are? That is, read from the pulpit, maybe even large sections. What a radical thing to do. (laughs) Why? In order, because certainly there, you would get this this effect of they're telling what happened. They're telling a story. And perhaps someone, and even some of you are going to be pastors, you know, um, as an aside, I heard Davis, Claire Davis say years and years ago, he thought one of the main dangers and problems in the evangelical church was boredom. And you can see from the way he preaches, he's always trying to keep people off balance right? and, and, you know, get them to think about really basic truths of Christianity, right? He's right on the beam in terms of the content, but he'll, he'll come at it a different way. Well, some of you, if you're going to be pastors, you might think, you know, partly to keep your congregation off balance in a good way, right? We're, we're going to have a long, you know, maybe two, three chapters of scripture read and, a, and then ought, ought your explanation to be confined perhaps to clearing up some few textual problems or explaining first century customs. You know, so one can occasionally put in a comment, right? Of, you know, Now, this makes sense in a context where, for instance, a leper, I was doing the story of the leper, right? although I read a larger portion, that's only five verses, but as a reading, it's saying, leprosy made a person unclean and excluded him from the, uh, the spiritual community, so you get some of the sense of it. Then you read the passage, you see, see a little bit of comment and a large amount of reading. What would that be like? I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this is uh, something one ought to try, but maybe. The point then is, the Gospels have an, uh, an effectiveness as they stand, even when they're not as we preach, you know, the way we think of modern preaching that takes only a few verses typically. Why not let the gospel speak for themselves? Well, anyway, I think that is a serious thing to, to uh, ask. And in part, what I want to say is that the gospels are simple, so simple that we are embarrassed. You know, the preacher feels I've got to do something besides stand up and read it, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Or I make myself superfluous. <laughs> but, and, you know, I'm kind of joking with you, right? Because I, 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 it's not that I'm against, you know, the standard way that people preach on these things, but I'm, I'm trying to get us thinking and saying uh, there's something about the Gospels that, that they're embarrassingly direct that you read it and that's what it says, right? There's a sense in which they need very little interpretation. And, uh, well, uh, this will deflect from the main point, but if I don't mention now, I probably won't mention it. Years ago, I was involved in, in nursing home ministry to some extent. And a particular nursing home, it was Ra's nursing home. I don't know what it's like now, but then, A good many people were senile and uh, not many of them could carry on a coherent conversation with you. Uh, What do you do in a worship service there? Well, I I ended up preaching from the Gospels mostly, telling a story because it's so simple and it confronts them with Christ so directly. I thought, you know, you're not ever sure exactly what these people understand, you know. But they can be saved, or the, those who are already saved can be edified by, by the very simplicity of the Gospels uh, and their story. So anyway, it's, it's something to, to, to uh, take very seriously, I think. Uh, that's A, they're meant to be read. B, can anyone give a dogmatic answer to what one does beyond that reading? without infringing on the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, what I'm after here is to say that there are some people with a recipe of how to preach. Where do they get the recipe? Does it really come from Scripture, you see? Or is it a convenient rule of thumb, right? Which then, you see, if you, and you don't want to have a recipe that is an addition to Scripture. The recipe, in fact, easily becomes the traditional man. <laughs> it's exactly you know what Jesus criticized. I can remember the story Thomas Howard, in his his autobiography, talked about. He grew up in evangelical circles and then started questioning the whole thing. And there came a time when he was just reading through the Gospels in Greek, <laughs> reflecting, you know, trying to get independent of his tradition, what was really there. I ended up a Roman Catholic, which I can't approve, but uh, anyway, this, there's a kind of ultimacy to the Gospels, you see, and we don't want to sort of straightjacket them by something that would be just a recipe. Now that doesn't mean there aren't the rules of thumb, right, as we wrestle with this. But, but in another way, what I'm saying is I, as the professor, I can't give you definitive answers beyond sending you back to the Gospels, uh, in danger of having everybody walk out out of my course. (laughs) If I gave you the definitive answers, it would be in danger of being some sort of, uh, I don't know, some sort of screen that would keep you from the direct encounter with the God of Scripture who is speaking to you in the Christ of Scripture, who is speaking to you in the Gospel. In other words, there's nothing more direct than this. Okay, four. I'm nevertheless going to continue teaching. (laughs) Uh, Four, they are enriched history. What do I mean by that? We've said they're historical records, right? At least. Enriched history, how so? A, they are theocentric. That is, they're concerned with God, of course, who is acting in Christ. And even though there's not a lot of explicit mentions of God the Father, it's clear from you know, those key points in which he does come into the picture when the baptism of Jesus. It's clear, and from Jesus' own statements of a relationship to the Father, that he is constantly involved in the events, as is Christ himself. So it is God-centered and God is the same God now. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ is the same Christ. And that, of course, is very important in terms of saying, answering the dry as dust approach. This happened back there, but you see, now immediately it, it is addressing you and I here and now because God is the same. Luke 5, 12 to 16, the, the uh, story, and I keep referring to this, I might as well go back. Let's read it so we make sure we know what it is. Luke 5, 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, "Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing, as a testimony to them." Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came near to him, and uh, to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus is the same Jesus who is then, consequently, able to heal now. Now immediately, you know, a host of problems come, some of which problems I talk about in the course on Miracles and Miraculous Gifts, where we get into you know, modern claims of healing and so on. And and I'm not trying to beg those questions, but to say you've got to believe that if you believe in the resurrection of the dead, <laughs> that that in effect Jesus' power is power to heal constantly. Now, it doesn't mean that we can deduce that physical healing of the body is going to be always the you know answered as prayer uh, right now, short of uh, the second coming. But but there are implications very directly uh, of a passage like this. Uh, theocentricity B. It is how is it enriched his history enriched in terms of a focus on divine action both of the Father and of Christ and of course even of the Spirit. B, it is redemptive history in that we are part of the programming, the the program of redemption that has climaxed in Christ and in his death and resurrection as uh, part of the, as it were, the stream of application of redemption flowing from his work. Hebrews 12, 22, and uh, this is, I learned a lot of this from Gaffin years ago. I was a student of Gaffin, too. Uh, you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That includes you and me, as it were, in the story, right? Not as if there isn't a distinctiveness to the once for all life of Christ, but that that the effects and the implications are carried out in the book of Acts, you see, and extending to us. So that a passage like Luke 5, 12 to 16 and this one story is meant to contribute to a whole process of an a, uh, activity of redemption that in the end will be cosmic redemption that will touch on bodily healing in the sense of the resurrection from the dead, the transformation of bodies that are now subject to sickness and death. Not that this leper, of course, receives a resurrection body at that moment, but what he does receive is, as it were, a token and a foretaste of the cosmic healing. It's a part of an entirety of process which will, in the end, lead to a restoration in the new heaven and new earth. Of course, there is no bare repetition, right, that in such a way that we mechanically repeat what uh, the works of Jesus' earthly life, but neither is it an irrelevancy. So point C is, in terms of redemptive history, what we're dealing with over and over again is structural analogy, if you want. Those of you who had a hermeneutics course will remember or may remember what I call the Robertson spiral. And the Robertson spiral is saying there were these resurrection-like events. In Noah's flood, for instance, you know, the whole world goes down into death, as it were, and Noah and his family come up, and Isaac is you know, given over to death, and, and then, uh, as it were, figuratively raised, and so on. There are these death and resurrection events in the Old Testament, all of them analogous to the death and resurrection of Christ, but all of them distinct right, and subordinate. So that we have analogy, structural analogy, without identity, And there are, in fact, many analogies we can expect between God's work then, whether it's even the Old Testament or particularly in the life of Christ, there are many analogies between God's work then and now. So it is a question, which are the most significant analogies and which are the most appropriate for you and for your audience? It's not a question, you see, of there is one answer to how to preach the Gospels. Are we like the leper in this story? Well, in certain respects, maybe. Are we like the disciples? The disciples aren't actually mentioned in the Luke account, but you can imagine that they're present. You know, what does one learn looking on, you see, as a disciple now? Are we like Christ? Now, that's a step that That people naturally, in their piety, uh, hesitate to take, and and of course we we must exercise suitable caution to understand the uniqueness of Christ's work. And yet, and yet, as the Father sent me, even so I send I you, right? (laughs) So Christ Himself underlines at certain key points the fact that His disciples' work is going to be analogous to His. So, anyway, there are these tantalizing questions, and I'm not answering them right yet, just yet. I'm asking them, I'm raising them. The goal of this course, then, is to help you to hear what the Gospels are saying. To hear it as report, as simple, but hear it in its ramifications, in which then there may be various implications in various directions. If you hear then it will become more and more evident how to communicate, although that, you know, it's an ongoing process. Because, you see, one of my themes is I don't think we exhaust the Gospels, right? There's no point in which we say, well, now I've got it. <laughs> we continue to learn our whole life and continue to, to, to uh, teach others on the basis of a kind of inexhaustible fund uh, of the knowledge of Christ, which is communicated in the Gospels. Okay, so now D the literary form of the Gospels. Everything is going to be bumped down here. D is going to be a closer look at Luke, and E is going to be the literary form of the Gospels. So I'm altering the outline, which I have. Uh, I'm not going to take a terrible amount of time on this, but it'd probably be clearer if I introduce another section like this rather than try to do it and pretend that it belongs to one of the sections you've got on your outline. You understand? Okay. I'm altering the course outline which you've got, introducing D there, and then the literary form will be of the gospel will be E. D is a closer look at Luke. One is the prologue. Luke 1, 1 to 4. Now this is significant. I'm not gonna, as I said, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. You can look in the literature uh, if you want. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught." Luke is especially significant because his is the only gospel with explicit teaching about how the gospel was composed. Now this whole thing of the genre of the Gospel, you see, and how these stories are to be treated within the Gospels is affected by this kind of thing. I would also observe what may be less obvious. Oh, no, no, before I go to the less obvious, well, let's take the obvious. Luke basically says I got this from reliable witnesses whom God commissioned, really. It's the eyewitnesses and ministers, you see, and that consequently you can know what happened. So there's a stress already on the historical reality of this. And that leads to point A, subpoint A under the prologue Luke and history writing. You can see Stonehouse's book, Luke's Witness. Well, I, I gave you, I think, Stonehouse wrote more than one book, and then they were combined into the Witnesses Synoptics to Christ. Okay, so it's the one on Luke that's now a subchapter of the one on the Synoptics. Stonehouse uh, has a long discussion of this, very good discussion. This prologue, what's less obvious is that this prologue is not completely unique in the type of thing that it says. Readers, I believe, in the first century environment would have recognized some tantalizing similarities with other things written in about Luke's time. There are some things that are common to many rhetorical prefaces in Greek literature, the use of polloi, many, and the mention of one's difference from other writers. Luke compares himself, contrasts, compares, uh, you know, mentions what other people have done. In history writing, Deodorus of Sicily, the Library of History, Book 1, 3, 2. That's 1.3.2, something similar. Dionysius of Halicarnassus, Roman Antiquities. These are both about first century now, 1.5.4. And above all, Josephus, Jewish War 1.1. Now this is about 90 A.D. maybe it was written. But the point is, this, Josephus wasn't inventing a thing, but was in a certain tradition. And uh, these people were all doing this kind of thing. But the Jewish war is particularly striking. And I could, you know, put the whole thing up on an overhead, maybe, but it's striking because Josephus shares an, uh, 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 a number of features with Luke's pre- pro, uh, preface or prologue: mention of previous writers on the subject, concern for accuracy based on accurate sources. The competence of the writer Josephus says, I've been an eyewitness. Of course, he was. See, he was a Jew. He's eyewitness to some of the things in the uh, the Jewish War, is a thing in uh, uh, 68 to 70 A.D. where Jerusalem was destroyed. And Josephus was there. He was captured by the Romans at a certain point, but then he continued to see as a captive. He's competent, and he describes his purposes. And he even has common vocabulary with Luke. Uh, Epé-de, uh, Luke has epé-de-per, the first word, inasmuch as. Die gamata the accounts. Pragmaton, the affairs about which the accounts are said. Acrobes, the, the, uh, uh, the accuracy. All right. My conclusion is, because of these correspondences, with Josephus striking correspondences, but also these other, writers that Luke is history. And, you know, the interesting thing is that there's been so much work on genre, and uh, that people have not, that is the historical critical tradition, has done all this work on genre, and they've not gone. I think they haven't gone with this because they know it'll lead them in a the direction they don't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> So it is history, not theology primarily, but histories in those days, including Josephus's, were written for people's benefit. They were written for edification. They were written for practical reasons for people learn lessons from history, you see. That didn't mean it was inaccurate. In fact, if it was inaccurate, then when people discovered that, of course, they were likely to distrust Thing in the way of you know the lessons and moral things that they would otherwise gain. You see, so that in order to do that, you had to be accurate as well. So the point is, there's no tension intrinsically between between faithfulness to the facts and doing something, having a purpose. And again, this has been a problem in historical critical tradition. People claiming since Luke is so clearly writing with theological interests that shows that. You know, this is theology and not history, and people make these awful dichotomies. (laughs) Now, the theological significance is, however, expressed indirectly, hinted at in the note of fulfillment. The things, the NIV has the things that have been fulfilled among us. Well, it's not plera'o, which is a normal word, it's plerophora'o, which is something like accomplished, but it's a loaded word, it's not just happened. And so I think fulfilled is not that bad. It's a little more direct perhaps than what the way Luke said it in Greek. Uh, But he's hinting at that. And of course you see by the end of Luke where Christ talks about uh, the fact that he explained to them from the Law of Moses and the Prophets the things uh, concerning himself that Luke is clearly saying all along now, though you haven't maybe been aware of it, these things have been fulfillment of the Old Testament. So uh, yes, he does have a theological interest. And he does, even in this word, I believe, carry a connotation of Old Testament fulfillment. But that is then in harmony with it being history. Now, hence, A or wait a minute, uh, I've probably lost you, right? But under the prologue, Luke and history writing is A, and then under that it'll be conclusions. Uh, one, Jesus did really heal the leper, because Luke claims it's so, and it's a genre question, right? You see, if you're Gundry and you think it's Midrash, you wouldn't be certain. Uh, so, claims it's so, and it is so, that's the authority question, right? The genre question is, is what is Luke really saying? Yeah, he claims it happened because he's writing history. And the authority question is the divine authorship, although even with an unbeliever, you can claim he's, Lucas, accurate as a human historian, right? But uh, if we know it's inspired, we can make a greater claim than that. And B, it is, or or point two, it is theologically significant as fulfillment, right? It's both had happened and it's theological. And there's the background, Then you look for the Old Testament theology of leprosy, and you think that's probably going to be relevant because Lucas introducing this idea of fulfillment. So what does this mean against the background of, of the Old Testament, right? And that question is going to be necessary for penetrating the significance of the thing at a you know, more profound level. Yes? I just have a real big question. You commented earlier on chronology. In yes. Verse 3, it says in the second order. Oh, yeah. Well, it's kaffex which means in order. And you can cite cases where the kind of order, that is, other occurrences of this same word, where the kind of order is chronological order. But you can also find cases where it's logical or topical order. That is, the word is in order, but the kind of order depends on you know, the context. Now, I know a fellow, uh, James Scott, who did his doctoral dissertation on the synoptics and argued that Luke is purely chronological and then arranged his other synoptics with Luke as a basis and, is, and you know, one of his reasons for doing that is this word. So but, is um, but I think that's reading more into that word than it will bear and if you look, Later on, Luke 4. Luke has an interesting way of doing these things. Uh, Luke, things are more or less in chronological order uh, in the first few chapters because it's the infancy narrative. And then, in verse, chapter 4. Oh, yes? Which In order, kathek um, And the akrabos, carefully. <laughs> There's several different modifying expressions there. I don't want to get into the details. Look at chapter 14 verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 14. After the temptation, Jesus returned to Galilee. The implication is we are dealing with the chronological order there, right? The return is after he'd been in the, in the desert. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. The implication is that the incident at Nazareth is not the very first thing in his ministry. And sure enough, if you compare Matthew or Mark, sorry, there's an incident, well, people debate whether it's the same thing. So it might not be the same. But anyway, he doesn't claim this is the very first thing. But nevertheless, theologically speaking, it's at the opening of his public ministry in terms of the way Luke develops it. So, you know, he just, Briefly, those two verses 14 15, he says Jesus did some things, but you don't know what. Then you have this as the first incident that Luke expands. and I think it's discernible that it's programmatic for Luke for helping people to understand the significance of Jesus' public ministry. So he's motivated at that point by a theological interest in what he selects to expand and what he passes by 14 and 15. Just, so it makes a general statement that there was a ministry, but, but tells you no specific incident in it. So that's somewhat of an example. Anyway, I, I didn't want to get bogged, more bogged down in this preface, but my argument at this point, basically, is, you see, that Luke is writing in the genre of Hellenistic history writing, and people could see the similarities between his prologue and Josephus's and Diodorus of Sicily and so on. It's at least that, although then I think it's got this theological overlay. And it's interesting, after the prologue, Luke, the character of the Greek changes. You can see it, the prologue is one gigantic sentence, very well crafted. And then beginning in verse five, it becomes far more like the Septuagint, which again introduces you to this atmosphere that is resonating with the Old Testament, you see. So, there's a good deal of of, um, crafting there, but it is history writing. And then if you look at the other three Gospels and compare them with Luke, I would claim they're the same genre. If they're the same genre, they're history writing too, you see. So that by itself eliminates Gundry. Or at least says, you know, now you've got an even bigger burden on you because you've got to show that against all appearances, Matthew somehow, without saying it directly, has got all his first century readers to realize he's doing something quite different from Luke. I don't see it. I don't see how a first century reader is going to see it. I think Gundry's got a, almost an impossible task right, to show. Sure, Matthew is a little bit different. right? It opens with a genealogy rather than with a prologue. But that's Old Testament history writing genre, right? Just like Chronicles. Well, anyway. You see the direction I'm going there. Yes. Uh, Was he ever? ever... Not that I know of. And so, uh, which again, I think, you know, I'm torn two ways because I can I can understand why the people didn't like what he was doing, but I don't agree that that it was right to throw him out. (laughs) So. Anyway, uh, all right, E, the literary form of the Gospels. And now we're on to this, uh, uh, what was D. Point one, the summary is basically to say that not only are they history, but they tell a coherent story centering around the person of Christ and leading up to the climactic days of the crucifixion and resurrection. But now I wanna say, in addition to that, point two, something about the historical structure of the Gospels. And uh, some of you out of hermeneutics may know a little bit of what I'm talking about here, but let me give you, and maybe I should, this is gonna be a puzzle to you, a bit, uh, but this is a very detailed outline of all four gospels, which I drew up years ago, partly using some linguistic techniques. i won't guarantee this is you know this is not definitive at all. it's rough, but I used some linguistic techniques to try to de- detect major breaks, and I was concerned uh, so this is just more for your reference, all right, although i 'll say a bit more about it later on in this section E. <clears throat> But uh, under point two, the rhetorical structure, what I'm after is plot development, or rather conflict development, or maybe rather both. The fact is that the story is heading somewhere. And this one is dealing with categories of plot and is oversimplified, is a schematic. Don't take it as the final answer, but it helps, I believe, in our thinking about the rise and fall of tension in narrative. And uh, thinking of the gospel story, you can see the same thing. For instance, the incident in Luke 4, where Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth, is um, the the uh, incident where conflict really gets going for the first time. Now, there is conflict with the devil, but that's a very special thing in The Temptation of the Wilderness. But, but there's the, the conflict directly with the, as it were, the characters, which are main characters in the story, that comes in in, uh, in this incident at, uh, at Nazareth. And I call that an occasioning incident. And so you can see in the handout that I've given you, and uh, if who doesn't have that? Let's see, one. Oh boy. <laughs> uh, good. Yeah, it is the same set of categories. That would be very useful. Uh, uh, we're not going to discuss, obviously, the whole of these things uh, right, right, just right yet. But let me talk about the uh, different categories there uh, with reference to the Gospels as a whole. Setting is composed of statements before the action of a narrative gets going. So if you take the Gospel of Luke, the prologue, although it's more a prologue, but it certainly isn't action yet, right? Luke is explaining himself before he talks about the actions. And then the action begins pretty much in the days of Herod, king of Judea, although that setting See, nothing is happening yet. There was a a man named Zacharias, um, and nothing is happening yet, right? But that's setting for the first incident involving Zacharias, not for the whole gospel. So the problem, and I'm taking things a little bit incoherently maybe, the problem is you can consider a single episode like the healing of the leper and watch the rise and fall of tension there. Or you can consider gospel as a whole, the whole of Luke. Let's do it with a single, uh, with a, a single episode. Well, you've given I've given you one in Luke six, six to eleven. Turn turn over the page, and you'll see what I've done with a single episode. And uh, we're going to run out of time here. Uh, we'll really have to do this next time. But what I'll do next time is show you what these categories look like, right? Uh, and then we'll talk about the organization of the gospel as a whole, as well as how it looks on the level of an episode. The purpose here is to grasp the gospels as stories, as things that have actions and events leading somewhere. So we'll have to take that up next time.